Hello, and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for VMPR. The confusion stops here. It's Ash Wednesday, of course. We're going to be talking about that today. First, a uh, uh, sad note, um, radio personality Rush Limbaugh has lost his battle with cancer and passed away. And uh, whatever you may have thought of Mr. Limbaugh or his politics, uh, he was quite an individual, and I think he really single-handedly revived, uh, I mean, AM radio in the 19, early 1980s was considered uh, a dead format, and talk radio especially. And uh, Mr. Limbaugh came along and uh, changed all of that. So all of us in uh, in <clears throat> this line of work actually owe him a, a debt of thanks. And also I discovered today, I did not know this, that Mr. Limbaugh was in fact a Catholic. So I want to make sure that everybody remembers to offer a prayer for the repose of the soul of Rush Limbaugh. Eternal rest grant unto him, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon him, may his soul and the souls of all the faithful departed. Through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. The Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. All right, today we're going to be talking about the Church's tradition regarding the reception of ashes and the laws regarding fasting and abstinence and how they have changed over the years. Um, And now that some churches are Opening back up, we're also going to look at 10 practical ways for you to grow in devotion uh, to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, to foster devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist. However, to start the program, in the extraordinary form of the Mass this week began with Quinquagesima Sunday, which is the final Sunday before Lent, which of course begins today. And the readings for this Sunday really help us to understand uh, this season of Lent. So to begin the epistle from uh, St. Paul's uh, epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. This is, of course, St. Paul's famous discourse on charity. Brethren, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And if if I should have prophecy and should know all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I should have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And if I should distribute all my goods to feed the poor, and if I should deliver my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity is patient, is kind. Charity envieth not, dealeth not perversely, is not puffed up, is not ambitious, seeketh not her own, is not provoked to anger, thinketh no evil, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth with the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never falleth away, whether prophecies shall be made voice or tongues shall cease, uh, or knowledge shall be destroyed. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away the things of a child. We see now through a glass in a dark manner, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now there remain faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. So here's St. Paul's famous litany of charity, love is patient, love is kind, etc. 
The apostle teaches the Corinthians, and through them us as well, the necessity, the, the qualities and the advantages of charity. First, the necessity, because all natural and supernatural gifts, all uh, virtues, all good works, all sacrifices, even martyrdom itself cannot save us if we do not have charity. Only charity makes us and our good works pleasing to God. So no matter what severe penances you might do this Lent, how strictly you observe the laws of fasting and abstinence and otherwise mortify yourself, no matter how many prayers you say or how many alms you give, without love, without charity, it will not avail unto your salvation. It's love of God and love of neighbor. Charity, caritas, is, is brotherly love. It's love of neighbor. It's not a feeling or an emotion. It is an act of the will, to will the good of the other. So first and foremost, charity is necessary. Number two, the qualities of charity, charity uh, begin with goodwill, right? It is an act of the will. And so to, to love without envy or suspicion or stubbornness, or, or malice, obviously, pure intention without selfishness or ambition or immodesty, injustice. Patience, an enduring patience without being hasty uh, and, and a humble submission to God. Because to those who possess true charity, God is everything. And that humble submission is about reconciling yourself to things happening in God's time and according to his good pleasure. And number three, the advantages of charity. Uh, charity is advantageous. It gives our good works their value. And because, as St. Paul says, charity never fails. And what does that mean? Well, the apostle says, and now, that is in this present moment, in this present life, now there remain these three, faith, hope, charity. But the greatest of these is charity. Charity is the greatest of the theological virtues simply because the others will come to an end. At our judgment, we won't need faith because we will see God as he is. He said, as he says in the epistle, uh, face to face, I shall know as I am known. So we won't need faith. Hope will also cease because in the end, all our hopes will either be fulfilled in heaven or will have to be abandoned in the other place. In other words, charity never fails because charity, charity alone lasts forever. And that's why it's the greatest of the three. St. Augustine said that faith lays the foundation of the house of God and hope builds up its walls, but charity covers and completes it. God, as St. John says, is love, and it is God who pours into our hearts the spirit of charity. And this is why we must always endeavor to preserve charity by remaining in the state of grace. That is the only way that all our works will be pleasing to God and also beneficial to us. And that's no nonsense. All right, next up is the gospel for Quinquagesima Sunday, taken from Luke chapter 18. At that time, Jesus took unto him the twelve and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and all things shall be accomplished which were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man. For he shall be delivered to the Gentiles, and shall be mocked and scourged and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things, and his word was hid from them, and they understood not the things that were said. Now it came to pass that when he drew nigh unto Jericho, 
that a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. And when he heard the multitude passing by, he asked what this meant. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they went, that went before rebuked him, that he shouldn't hold his peace. But he cried out much more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus, standing, commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I do to thee? But he said, Lord, that I may see. And Jesus said to him, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath made thee whole. And immediately saw and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So there's three main aspects to this Gospel. Our Lord's prediction of his passion, the Apostles' failure to understand, and the cure of a blind man, which is not coincidental. Now this is not the first time that our Lord has alluded to his passion. He's spoken of it plainly, he's spoken of it in parables, and he did so on several occasions. And of course, there's the Old Testament prophecies of, of the Messiah that portray him not only as the son of David, a conquering hero, but also as the son of man, a suffering servant. So first we ask why our Lord so often predicted these sufferings to his apostles, and the answer is threefold. First, to show that he already knew about them, right? to show his omniscience. Um, you remember the apostles were simple men, the, uh, you know, not scripture scholars. Number two, it shows us that he desired to suffer. We know that he didn't have to suffer in the way he did in order to save us, but he suffered willingly because it was fitting, considering how greatly we have offended God by our sins. And number three, he predicted his passion in order that his disciples would not be scandalized by his humiliation, or worse, think that he had deceived them, that he really wasn't uh, who he claimed to be. So by indicating that he knew what was coming, and that he entered into it freely, he was guaranteeing that in retrospect, by remembering his words, they wouldn't be scandalized, but would be confirmed in their belief of him as Son of God and Redeemer of the world. And I say in retrospect because they didn't understand. And why not? Well, first and foremost, they simply couldn't reconcile those predictions with their own expectations of a, a glorious earthly kingdom. And we shouldn't be so quick to judge them because, you know, no matter how plainly the truths uh, of the faith are presented, the, you know, the only way people can overcome their own worldly opinions and ideas and embrace them is through the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then we have the, the history of the cure of the blind man. And what do we learn from that? Well, the inexpressible misfortune of blindness of heart, right, in a state in which we do not know God and therefore don't see the way of life or, or recognize things that might hinder our salvation, but instead just grope about in the darkness of ignorance and sin. The blind man in the gospel shows us salvation from this awful condition comes through Jesus Christ, healing and enlightening us through his grace. And then the blind man also models for us the zeal with which we should seek our Lord and the perseverance with which we should call upon him for deliverance. How we should disregard bad example, persecution, and ridicule of the world, and how fervently we should thank God, and how faithfully we should follow him. Okay, we are off to a good start. Uh, talking about opening the eyes of the soul and being freed by grace and the spiritual blindness of sin, and that is no nonsense. When we come back, the traditions of Lent, why Ash Wednesday is going to be a little different this year, and ten ways to increase your devotion to Christ in the Holy Eucharist.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Before we get into the traditions of Lent, I know that uh, because of current conditions, uh, current circumstances, many people will not be able to attend Mass today. So, number one, I want to remind you that uh, Ash Wednesday is not a holy day of obligation, so you needn't feel guilty if you're prevented uh, from going to Mass today. And I also, I would like to uh, start this segment reading the readings for Ash Wednesday from the extraordinary form of the Mass, beginning with the Epistle, which, uh, fairly unusual for the extraordinary form, is taken from the Old Testament, from the prophet Joel, chapter 2. Therefore, saith the Lord, be converted to me with all your heart, in fasting and in weeping and in mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments, and turn to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, patient and rich in mercy, and ready to repent of the evil. Who knoweth but he will return and forgive and leave a blessing behind him, sacrifice and libation to the Lord your God. Nice prophecy of our Lord there. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather together the people, sanctify the church, assemble the ancients, gather together the little ones and them that suck at the breast. Let the... um, let the uh, bridegroom go forth from his bed and the bride out of her bride chamber. Between the porch and the altar, the priests, the Lord's ministers, shall weep and shall say, Spare, O Lord, spare thy people, and give not thy inheritance to reproach, that the heathens should rule over them. Why should they say among the nations, Where is their God? The Lord hath been zealous for his land and hath spared his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be filled with them, and will no more, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations, saith the Lord Almighty. So the prophet Joel, in these words, calls upon the Israelites to be converted. He reminds them of the great mercy of God, and he exhorts them to join uh, with their fasting and alms true repentance for their sins, that they should all, without exception, do penance and implore the nurse, uh, the uh, mercy of God, from nursing babies to the ancients, from the little ones to the priests at the altar, and then God would forgive them and deliver them from their enemies and bring peace and happiness upon them. Such is the spirit of the season of Lent. And now the gospel for Ash Wednesday out of Matthew, chapter six, verses sixteen through twenty-one. At that time, Jesus said to his disciples, When you fast, be not as the hypocrites, sad, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear unto men to fast. Amen, I say to you, they have received their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thy head and wash thy face, that thou appear not to men to fast, but to thy Father who is in secret. And thy Father who seeth in secret will repay thee, Lay not up to yourself treasures on earth where the rust and moth consume and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up to yourselves treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth doth consume and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where thy treasure is, there is thy heart also. The words of the Holy Gospel for Ash Wednesday. Okay, so Ash Wednesday is so-called because on this day the Catholic Church blesses ashes. And the minister traces them uh, on the foreheads of the faithful, saying, Remember, O man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. That's actually from Genesis chapter 3, verse 19, by the way. And naturally, uh, in the Novus Order, there are optional formulas, (laughs) but this is the traditional one. 
And the ashes, of course, are made by burning the, uh, the blessed palms from the previous Palm Sunday. And then the ashes are blessed and sprinkled with holy water and then distributed on, on the uh, heads of the faithful. So why are the ashes blessed? Well, number one, blessing the ashes makes them into a sacramental so that all who receive them with a contrite heart yeah, and uh, may be preserved in body and soul. Number two, that through the distribu- distribution of ashes, God may grant us contrition and pardon of our sins. And three, that he might grant the faithful all they humbly ask for, particularly the grace to do penance and to receive the reward promised by or promised to the truly penitent. Now, ostensibly because of the COVID uh, virus, this year some dioceses are going to break with that tradition in a couple of ways. First, the formula, remember thou art dust, etc., will not be spoken over every penitent as per usual, but only pronounced at the beginning, uh, one time at the beginning of the ceremony. Can't have the priest, you know, spreading germs after all. Also, some dioceses will be distributing ashes via sprinkling on the head rather than tracing the sign of the cross on the forehead. Now, I should point out that sprinkling of ashes was always a public sign of penance, and as such, it was uh, enjoined by God onto the Israelites in uh, uh, Jeremiah 25. In Psalm 101, verse 10, it says, David sprinkled ashes on his bread. Uh, the Ninevites in, in Jonah, Judith in Judith 9, Mordecai in, in the book of Esther, and Job in the book of Job, and, and others, we read that they did uh, penance in sackcloth and ashes, that they put ashes on their head. So I suspect there's probably some you know, liturgist types out there that are all aflutter over what they imagine is a, a return to the ancient practice of the early church. The fact is, though, that uh, around the world there are various countries where ashes are not traced, where ashes still are sprinkled on the head. For example, if you go to Ash Wednesday Mass in Germany, they'll you know trace a cross on your forehead just like they do here. But if you go to Mass in Poland, then they will sprinkle it on on top of the head. In fact, the uh, the, the Roman Missal just says that the Ashes are to be sprinkled on, on the people. It doesn't even say that it has to be on their head. You know, and that's the thing. Why, you, you'd think there'd be, um, you know, it would be more distinct than that. But the fact of the matter is, this is not a sacrament. So there's no, there isn't any question of, about validity in regard to its reception. Okay, it's a sacramental. Uh, and that's why Ash Wednesday is not uh, a holy day of obligation. Uh, but it is the first day of Lent. It is a day of fasting and abstinence in the church, meaning we have only one full meal in the day and that we refrain from meeting, eating meat. The only other prescribed day of both fasting and abstinence uh, in the church today is Good Friday, although Catholics are obliged to abstain uh, from meat on all the Fridays of Lent. Now, under the old law, the Jews fasted and abstained by command of God. So Moses fasted for 40 days and 40 nights on Mount Sinai. Uh, the prophet Elias or Elijah fasted in the desert. Our, our Lord Jesus fasted for 40 days uh, and commanded his apostles to fast as well. <clears throat> Pardon me, when you fast, he says. So the Catholic Church, according to Pope St. Leo the Great, um, from the very time of the apostles, enjoined fasting on the faithful. And the reason that we have the fast uh, before Easter, well, there's five reasons, right? To imitate Jesus, who fasted for 40 days, uh, to participate in his merits and passion, for as Christ could only be glorified through his sufferings, we likewise, in order to truly belong to him, must follow his example. Number three, to make our flesh subject to our spirit, and thus, four, prepare ourselves for Easter and the worthy reception 
of the Divine Lamb and Holy Communion because we are obliged to receive Holy Communion at least once a year, and that during the Easter time. And finally, number five is to offer God some satisfaction for our sins. Like uh, Leo the Great says, to atone for the sins of a whole year by a short fast of the tenth part of the year. He considered fasting for 40 days the, the, the quick way. And, you know, because in earlier times, the fast was kept somewhat more rigorously. You know, a church uh, Christians in the early ages fasted through all 40 days of Lent, uh, which is, and Lent, of course, is actually 46 days, but you don't fast on Sunday because that's always a, a celebration of the resurrection. And then in the Middle Ages, uh, people also abstained all 40 days, and not just from, from flesh meat, but from the things that are produced from the flesh. So butter, and eggs, cheese, even fish and wine. So essentially they had to become vegan for a few weeks every year. And then they fasted, of course, during the whole day. They only ate after Vespers, after the evening prayers, so in the evening time. Now these days we have the custom of giving something up for Lent so that uh, uh, although we don't fast all 40 days, we are still making some daily sacrifice or uh, some mortification. So we got it pretty easy by comparison. And the point is still the same, though. To deny ourselves that which is good in order to better able to deny that which is forbidden. Now, we're going to talk about uh, Lent and the customs of Lent in uh, more detail later on in the show. But right now, I, I um, because churches are starting to open up in, in many places around the country, because more of the faithful are now, you know, have opportunity to visit our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament once again, some churches even having um, uh, Eucharistic exposition again, I thought it'd be well to take a minute and offer some ways to foster devotion to Jesus and the Holy Eucharist, and specifically to increase your own personal devotion to Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. I think we probably have time for, for one before we go to the break. So I want to just dive right in uh, to begin with by saying that we should live habitually in close union with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, to paraphrase the Song of Solomon, my beloved to me and I to him. So you want to join your devotion to Jesus, otherwise your devotion to the Sacred Heart, your devotion to the Passion, uh, and the Sacred Heart re- representing the divine will in Christ, um, and to join those things to your devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, you know, to the presence of Christ, uh, substantial and, and here and now in the tabernacle, and to always try and seek out and adore the heart of Jesus, present and living and loving you in the Holy Eucharist. And how do you do that? Well, that's number two on our list, is to make frequent use of ejaculatory prayers. Uh, prayers that express your love uh, for Jesus, press, prayers that uh, express your desire for union with him in the Blessed Sacrament. Adoremus in eternum sanctissimum sacramentum. Let us adore forever the most holy sacrament. Um, uh, uh, o solitaris hostia, dorober fer auxilium. O saving host, give me strength, help me. O sacrum convivium in quo Christus sumitur. That's from, uh, from uh, St. Thomas Aquinas. O sacred banquet in which Christ is received. 
bone pastor panis vere, Jesu nostri miserere. O good shepherd, true, G- true, true bread, O Jesus, have mercy on us. Um, let's see, it's one of my favorites. Adorote devote latens deitas. I don't really pray them in Latin, typically, although sometimes. But that's, O hidden God, I adore thee devoutly. Because he's hidden, you see, under the appearance of bread and wine. Um, tu in me et ego in te et signos paritur in unum concede. Thou in me and I in thee, and so grant that we may be one. You can find any number of these um, classic ejaculatory prayers um, in the Recolta. Uh, you can look online. Really, any Catholic prayer book <clears throat> will have prayers like this, although the older that book is, probably the more you'll find. And you don't have to worry about trying to memorize a whole long list. It's a good practice, uh, though, to, even if you have to write it out, just choose one and make it a watchword throughout the day. Great thing to uh, help your devotion to the Blessed Eucharist. We're going to talk about more ways to do that when we come back at the beginning of Lent, right here on No Nonsense Catholic, Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We shall return to stay with us. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here, um, talking about 10 ways to increase your devotion to Jesus in the Eucharist. And I began by saying that you should live habitually in close union with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. And the way to do that, number two on the list, was to make frequent use of ejaculatory prayers. And these prayers can be short and sweet. Um, My Jesus mercy, all for Jesus. Um, You know, sweetheart of Jesus, be my love. Uh, I taught the kids, my kids, to recite the first words of the old hymn, O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine. I taught them to make the cross, sign of the cross, and say that prayer every time we pass a Catholic church, even if we're driving in the car, because it, it helps make it real to them that Jesus is present there in the tabernacle. Uh, number three of the ten ways, bear in mind that you are, if you are, fervently devoted to Jesus in the tabernacle, you are also bound to pay honor and veneration to his blessed mother. Now, this, I suspect, goes without saying, um, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who's devoted to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and goes to adoration who is not also devoted to Mary. And again, such uh, devotions can be joined together, you know, um, in your intentions, in your simple prayers. For example, Our Lady of the Most Blessed Sacrament, pray for us. My old uh, Father Lassant's prayer book, I had this prayer book, it was from about 1910, I think. And it's called My Prayer Book, and the subtitle is Happiness and Holiness by uh, Father Lassant. And in that, he has a Eucharistic rosary. So it's, it's the rosary, but all the meditations are connected to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Wonderful devotion. All right, so Our Lady as well as... uh, our Lord in the Eucharist. Number four, in this year, which is especially dedicated to St. Joseph, it is well to remember that the foster father of our Lord is the patron of the Universal Church, declared so by uh, Blessed Pope Pius IX, and that he stands very close to Jesus and Mary in heaven, just as he did on earth. You think about how good, how great he must have been in the eyes of God the Father who have been chosen and been granted the, uh, the honor and the prerogative of um, 
being foster father to Jesus and the guardian and protector, the husband of Mary. We should also be sure to remember St. Joseph, honor him in our visits to the tabernacle and pray to him for a happy death. St. Joseph, pray, pray for me that like thee I may die in the arms of Jesus and Mary. That's consummation devoutly to be wished. Now, um, <clears throat> pre-Vatican II, and therefore in the current spirituality of uh, many of us who are attached to the traditional Mass and Sacraments, February is the month that's traditionally dedicated to the Holy Family. Uh, I know that uh, these days they change it to the Passion of Jesus. Of course, we're heading into Lent, but that's going to be the case anyway. But uh, February was always the month of the Holy Family. And, and um, St. Joseph, of course, always watched over the interests of the Holy Family with great solicitude, that is, with kindness, with attentiveness. He was a true father to that family. So we must remember the love uh, he must have for the poor tabernacle. Not only as a carpenter, you know, uh, and it was the carpenters in the Middle Ages that started building tabernacles in the churches, um, but for the presence of Christ that dwells there. And and to, I imagine he will be happy to protect and and work to render, uh, you know, to protect all of those who work to, to give honor to um, the divine host. All right, number five, now that uh, some churches um, are beginning to open up again, be sure that uh, when possible, make your daily meditation in the church, in front of the Blessed Sacrament. We'll talk about Holy Hour in a minute, but even if, even if it's just for a few minutes. And if you can't be present in the church, then you can make your daily devotions, um, when you do that, turn towards the nearest tabernacle. You know, I, um, uh, it's easy for me. I can see the bell tower of Christ Cathedral from my front bedroom. But, uh, but you know, it, it's, it's sufficient to know that you're facing in the direction of the nearest church, that there's the tabernacle there. And I think it's a good practice, especially when you're making a spiritual communion. Number six, like I said, I live near Christ Cathedral, but, uh, you know, my parish is actually in, in another town because that's where they... Uh, we have the diocesan celebration of the extraordinary form of the Mass on Sundays and Holy Days. And we have an adoration chapel there. And pre-COVID, we not only had perpetual adoration, but perpetual exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. And now that we're finally being allowed back into the church, albeit in a limited capacity, and unfortunately not being allowed back into the chapel, but uh, in the main body of the church, well, they just announced this Sunday that we're going to have Eucharistic exposition uh, for a couple of hours every day, followed by benediction. And that's something, boy, if you've never done that, you really need to. You know, I especially love when, when our Eucharistic king is taken from the tabernacle and, and surrounded by candles and flowers and so forth on the altar throne. Because if, you know, if, if as the spiritual writers tell us, uh, he delights in this, I think the reason must be that that he's being visited and adored and loved by souls. It's not for nothing that uh, the presence of Christ has been referred to as the prisoner of the tabernacle. So if you have occasion to pass by a church, you know, if you walk past a church uh, uh, regularly, go in, even for a moment, you know, just to salute our Lord. And if you can't enter, or if you're just driving by, um, you know, make sure to offer up a little prayer to Jesus. Deus meus et omnia, my God and my all, or like I taught my kids, O sacrament most holy, O sacrament divine, all praise and all thanksgiving be every moment thine, while making the sign of the cross. I think that's important too, making some external sign 
uh, of reverence, whether it's the sign of the cross or removing your hat if you're a man or a bow of the head, just to greet him with some outward sign and to give him your heart and to tell him and show him that you love him and adore him. Number seven is to mark your progress in this devotion. I think that's a, a good axiom in any kind of devotion. You know, every week, uh, if possible, in his presence, maybe just at Sunday Mass, examine yourself regarding your devotion to our Lord in the Blessed Eucharist. You know, do I love him more? Do I live in closer union with him in this sacrament? Am I becoming more like him uh, in my humility, in my meekness, which, of course, we've talked about so often on this program, as well as of all the other virtues? You know, to remember the words of St. Paul that this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Catholics are universally called to holiness, and devotion to Christ in the Eucharist is a sure way to make progress in sanctity. Number eight, keep all the feasts of the Blessed Sacrament with special fervor. If you're devoted to our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, show it. You know, Corpus Christi, uh, Holy Thursday, the First Communion of the children at the parish, uh, the anniversary of your own First Communion. These are all things that you should uh, celebrate with a special fervor, you know, uh, participating in the Corpus Christi procession, if they have that sort of thing in your parish and so on. You know, I realize that as an adult convert, it's kind of easy for me to celebrate the anniversary of my baptism and my First Holy Communion because I received the uh, you know, a sacramental grand slam on the Easter vigil. But I know that, you know, Catholics, um, even those of us that are baptized as infants, you know, the, the church keeps records of these things, and so does uh, Catholic families. So if you can't remember the date that you first received Holy Communion, you can certainly find out. You know, remember the words of Moses, uh, or the words of the Lord to Moses, rather, in Exodus 12, regarding the first Passover. This day shall be for a memorial to you, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord in your generations with an everlasting observance. Now these words were fulfilled in Holy Thursday when Christ celebrated the first Holy Mass and the apostles received communion for the first time. But it also applies to the anniversary of your first communion. In fact, since many of us were children uh, when we made our first communion, I would say no doubt that you have a greater appreciation today for that first reception of the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, um, receiving our Lord into your heart, than when it actually happened. So, a good practice. Number nine uh, is this, you know, and this might be difficult in the present circumstances, but try to make Eucharistic adoration at least once a month. Uh, you might join or, or perhaps found a, a Eucharistic league or a tabernacle society, Holy Name Society, that sort of thing. Um, or a movement that I think is worthy of revival, which is the Guard of Honor. And that's a devotion that includes a daily holy hour. Now, you probably already know that Venerable Fulton Sheen uh, spent an hour before the Blessed Sacrament every day. We call it the, the hour of power, the hour that makes my day, he says. But for lay people uh, who go to daily Mass, Sheen said that Mass can be considered a part of that holy hour. So if a daily Mass typically half an hour, if you come 15 minutes early and spend that in front of the Blessed Sacrament, and then spend another 15 minutes before our Lord afterwards, either in the tab- before the tabernacle in the church, or if you had an adoration chapel, then you will have made your holy hour. In fact, for a layperson, it might even be preferable, because uh, clearly assisting at Holy Mass is the greatest prayer that you can offer to the Divine Majesty. 
O see, upon the altar placed, the victim of the greatest love. Let all the earth below adore and join the choirs of heaven above. Sweet sacrament, we thee adore. O make us love thee more and more. Lastly, number 10, it goes without saying that you should never approach the blessed sacrament unworthily. St. Paul tells us, for as often as uh, you shall eat this bread and drink the chalice, you show the death of the Lord until he comes. Therefore, whosoever shall eat the bread or drink the chalice of the word <clears throat> Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man prove himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the chalice. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment to himself, not discerning the body of the Lord. A final note, Father Lassance in that prayer book, he said, Sweet is our Lord in thought, sweet in the pages of the Holy Gospel, sweet in the shadowy symbol of the devout picture, and yet more in the Holy Crucifix, yet sweeter <clears throat> beyond comparison, <clears throat> pardon me, in the adorable sacrament of his love. Wherefore, he says, the church sings in the words of her saint, referring, of course, to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, O Jesus, the very thought of thee with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter far thy face to see and in thy presence rest. Amen. And that's no nonsense. Okay, uh, when we return, going to take a closer look at the traditions of Lent, what we are obliged to observe as Catholics, and how that observation has changed over the years. So that's coming up right after this here on No Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. As I mentioned at the top of the show, today is Ash Wednesday, and it is the first day of the season of Lent. And I wanted to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the season of Lent. Ash Wednesday, of course, is a day of fasting and abstinence. And it is 46 days before Easter. And so when we say that uh, we talk about the 40 days of Lent or the 40 days uh, fast, it's because we don't count the six Sundays on which there is no fasting prescribed anywhere in the church. And then we have the final two weeks of Lent, which are called Passion Week and Holy Week, respectively, because of the church's liturgy focusing so closely on <clears throat> the last stages of our Lord's mortal life. And uh, during the whole season of Lent, our Lord, uh, our, the church sets before us our Lord's public life, um, including his fasting, his passion, and his death. And in keeping with the penitential season, the Church traditionally forbade the celebration of nuptial Masses uh, from Ash Wednesday to after Easter Sunday. And once again, in keeping with the spirit of Lent, Catholics were traditionally expected to abstain from worldly amusements, going to shows and, and uh, parties and feasting and that sort of thing, so that they could devote more time to prayer, penance, and religious exercises. Now, I mentioned in the second segment that the rules of fasting and abstinence were more severe back in the Middle Ages than they are today, that medieval Catholics fasted and abstained for all 40 days, and not only from flesh meat, uh, but from those things which are produced from the flesh, like butter and eggs and cheese and so on. And also that they fasted the whole day, that they didn't take their first uh, morsel of food until after 
Vespers in the evening. <clears throat> now today, of course, we're only uh, required to abstain on Ash Wednesday and the Fridays of Lent. And when I say, uh, you know, we're only required, I mean, under, you know, under pain of sin. And, uh, and that we are required to fast only on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. But you don't have to go back to medieval times to find out that Catholics used to fast and abstain on many more days of the year than just in Lent. In fact, you need only go back to before Vatican II. And, you know, and the rules regarding fasting have not changed all that much. Uh, a fast day is a day on which only one full meal is allowed. But uh, today, some you know, other food may be taken according to local custom. Now, in the United States, that means two small um, repasts, officially called collations, uh, and both together should not amount to a full meal. Uh, also on fast days that are not days of abstinence back in the day, um, meat or fish could be eaten, but only at the full meal. Now, obviously today, you know, we only have two days of fasting and abstinence, uh, so there's no longer a concern you know, about uh, fast days that are not days of abstinence unless you want to voluntarily follow what one priest I know calls the honors program. But uh, during a fast, of course, uh, in between meals, snacks, that's obviously forbidden. Uh, But it's always been um, permissible to imbibe in liquids. And back in the day, liquids that were not nourishing. So wine or beer, soda pop, tea, black coffee, that kind of thing. These days, I believe that nourishing liquids are also allowed, like, um, like broth and milk and so on. And all Catholics uh, used to be between the ages of 21 and 59 were obliged to fast. Now it's 18 until the completion of the 59th year, which is just kind of a roundabout way of saying 60. So and why the distinction? And uh, it's because young people, of course, are not done growing and they need more than one meal a day. And those who have passed their 59th year are often also in need of more than one meal. Uh, just keep the strength up. Not, not to mention some folks have always been dispensed from fasting. Um, especially in the days when the fast was much more strict. You know, pastors used to have the power of dispensing from fast and abstinence uh, in certain cases, and that's not only individuals, but even entire families. But those who were dispensed from fasting still had to abstain unless they were dispensed from that also. So who are we talking about? Those in weak health, the sick, the convalescent, nursing mothers, the very poor, those engaged in hard work, right? and that's not just physical laborers, but teachers, nurses, first responders, uh, law, officers of the law. So in other words, people who needed to keep their strength up and upon whom um, others had to rely for important services. Now, a day of abstinence is a day when you're not allowed to use a fresh meat, understood as warm-blooded animals and birds and fowl. So that means that fish and shellfish and snails and frogs and squids and alligators, uh, those things may be taken on abstinence days, as well as milk and cheese and eggs. Uh, And as pre-Vatican II Catholics were called to fast for all the weekdays of Lent, all the 40 days, um, we were also obliged to abstain all the Fridays of the year. And why? Well, just because, uh, you know, as, as every Sunday is essentially uh, like another Easter, every Friday is, is a commemoration of Good Friday. <clears throat> so strictly speaking, we're still expected to abstain on Friday unless we substitute some other penance. And that makes a certain amount of sense, you know, because I can, I can see in the West uh, t- today, abstaining from flesh meat isn't necessarily so much of a sacrifice if it means that you're just going to substitute, uh, you know, lobster thermidor or go out for all-you-can-eat crab legs 
or whatever, you know. Um, so the custom of some Catholics uh, today is to substitute something else on Friday, some devotion to the Passion uh, or, you know, to say an extra decade of the Rosary or, or some other penitential act. Um, we are, let's, who's obliged to abstain? Well, it used to be all Catholics over seven. Now it's all Catholics uh, 14 and over, unless they're excused or dispensed, right? So the sick and the convalescent, uh, likewise with fasting. Uh, the church commanded us to fast and abstain so that we can control the desires of the flesh and raise our minds more freely to God and make satisfaction for sins. That's why St. Paul famously in 1 Corinthians 9 says, I chastise my body and bring it into subjection, lest perhaps when I have preached to others, I myself should become a castaway. So the church doesn't command fasting and abstinence because she thinks that meat or other foods are, are somehow bad in themselves. Rather, we deny uh, our, ourselves for the glory of God and for the good of souls. Uh, you know, fasting and meditating on the sufferings of Christ can help us to have proper contrition for our sins. But we remember that fasting and abstinence are only pleasing to God when we also refrain from sin and engage in good works. Uh, and uh, let's see, fasting and abstinence should also not be carried to excess, right, to the injury of our health. You know, our duty to conserve our health is part of the law of God and of nature, and therefore is over and above the law of the church to fast and abstain, right? The second precept of the church to fast and abstain on the days appointed. When those two conflict, then the first prevails. Scripture says, obedience is better than sacrifice. So, I mean, we shouldn't regularly overeat and then do severe fasting on special occasions. Although I guess, you know, today that's not so much of an issue uh, as it was when there was a lot more fasting and abstinence required of Catholics, not just in Lent, but throughout the year. See, because before Vatican II, Catholics fasted also, not just on the days of Lent, but also on the ember days, which were, um, there were three ember days every season. So uh, it would consist of the Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday after the first Sunday of Lent, the first Sunday of Pentecost, after September the 14th, and after December the 15th. So that's 12 ember days. Um, they fasted all the days of Lent except Sunday up till high noon on Saturday. They fasted uh, on the vigils of Pentecost and the Feast of the Assumption, the Vigil of All Saints Day, which is Halloween, and Christmas, which means that Christmas Eve used to be a fast day. And then the days of abstinence were all of Fridays, with the exception of Holy Days, of course. Obviously, you wouldn't abstain uh, uh, from meat on Christmas just because it fell on a Friday. Uh, but um, you would also abstain on the Wednesdays, as well as the Fridays of Lent, and on the Ember Days also, and the Vigils. So in the days before the introduction of the Novus Ordo, that means that there were in all 53 fast days and 73 days of abstinence every year. Today we have two fast days, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, and seven days of abstinence, Ash Wednesday and all the Fridays of Lent. But uh, as I noted earlier, and this is, an indictment, is not an indictment against uh, uh, the rules of the church, but um, while we are not strictly obliged to abstain on all the Fridays of the year, we are meant to do some act of penance, uh, other act of penance instead, if we don't, like every Friday of the year. And so my family simply abstains from meat on Friday because it's traditional and because it's a good habit and because we don't have to be creative about, you know, oh, what are we going to do today? Uh, you know, um, when we can simply abstain from meat, and it's a, a constant reminder. 
Also, uh, since Catholics are no longer obliged to fast on all the days of Lent, it is customary to choose uh, some Lenten sacrifice. Right, I'm going to give up, going to give it up for Lent, whatever it might be. Uh, but whatever it is, I should tell you, should really be something that's renewable. Because whether you're giving up chocolates or coffee or beer or whatever, embracing some extra daily devotion, you are very likely to fall at some point. And you should not be discouraged because that's also a part of Lent. See, this is a whole season devoted to recognizing the fact that we're not perfect and that we are absolutely in need of God's grace and to offer us a a good old-fashioned dose of humility. Think about our Lord's words in John 15, uh, verse 5, where he says, Without me... You can do nothing. And that, my good friends, is no nonsense. So let's remember that uh, while you are not obliged to do the honors program, although you certainly may, uh, you are only obliged to do that which is required by the church. So for a successful Lent, fast and abstain on the days appointed. Pray, do penance, give alms, make some special Lenten sacrifice, And may God grant you a blessed and a fruitful Lent. All right, that's uh, our show for Ash Wednesday 2021. I hope that uh, I managed to impart something that maybe you weren't uh, aware of or or familiar with or remind you of something important. Also, um, I I just want to say again, to avoid scrupulosity. And and I know especially uh, there's people in in the traditional movement who... You know, read about, oh, well, it used to be so much stricter in the old days, and I do this, and I do that, and I follow the, you know, don't get caught up in that, especially if you lean towards scrupulosity. Just do what the church requires. Fast and abstain on the days appointed, that's Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Abstain on all the Fridays of Lent. Choose a Lenten sacrifice, and uh, love God and your neighbor, because that's what's really important. All right, uh, I want to thank you for being along with us as usual. I also want to thank you, uh, those of you that support us, not only with your prayers, but also uh, financially. We do um, absolutely uh, rely on your generosity, both spiritual and financial. And uh, if you'd like to help us out materially and maybe make that a part of your Lenten sacrifice, you can do so by visiting vmpr.org. That is our website, and as you can donate there and find out about becoming a monthly donor and uh, and also all of the stuff that we're doing here. You can also download the app, lots of prayers, lots of uh, um, things that are uh, besides just the programs. And, of course, the programs, even some that are not part of our live stream every day. So check out vmpr.org. And until next time, may God richly bless you and your family.